this morning, as I, as we, we're going to go back into 1 Samuel, if you want to get yourselves ready, um, I've been tasked with 1 Samuel 30, but I felt like I couldn't start there, so I'll get to that in a second. But I just felt led to mention something just about the Word of God. You know, it's one of our values around here, the Word of God, and we love it. And, and, and when we come up to preach a sermon, that's usually kind of the highlight of the word in our gatherings. But I just think about this so much. I tell like, when I'm talking to people about like teaching youth and other things, people aren't going to remember what you say. Like five years from now, no kid is going to remember what you said in youth group, right? Three months from now, you will not remember most of what I say right now in the next 30-something minutes. But you will remember what Jesus says. You will remember what people pray over you, what, what Jesus says into your heart during worship or during stories of hearing God um, at work and like Jim's life and outdoor immersion. So all of what we do in the morning is just an avenue to hear God's voice. And when he speaks it directly to you, that's so much more impactful than when another human being speaks it to you. But I'm going to do my best to give you something this morning to go through um, some of 1 Samuel together, and, and hopefully God will speak to you, and you'll remember that. So Jesus, would you open our ears this morning? Would you open mine to hear your voice? Would you open all of us to hear you and what you want us to to? to linger on, to reflect on, to meditate and marinate on this morning. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. So if you like um, good television or movies, you may be familiar with movies that kind of start or TV shows that kind of start at this like dramatic scene. It opens up and you're like, it's like super dramatic and everything's going on. And then it stops and it takes you back like six months. You guys know the ones I'm talking about? It's like, it doesn't let you figure out what's happening yet. It's like, here, wait, come back a little bit and we're going to take you through this. Okay. You may also be familiar that really good movies and television, they have complicated characters. They have really good, complex characters. Like, they're not like the clear, like, saint. They're kind of like sinner and saint. They're like, oh, sometimes you're rooting for them, and sometimes you're not sure if you're supposed to be rooting for them because of what they're doing. And, and you don't really know how to feel, but it draws you in, okay? I want to submit to you today that David is one of those characters in the Bible, all right? So if you really like David, I'm sorry, I'm going to take some shots at David today, okay? Now, we kind of know, like, he's done some stuff, but we're going to get into some other stories where it's like, maybe we don't focus on a lot, and, and, and unfortunately, I'm taking shots at David, but you also know, like, the Psalms and everything that he's done and the kingship of David, so it's like this really complicated character, okay? So uh, we're going to dwell on that a little bit this morning. And when I got to 1 Samuel 30, here's the opening scene of the movie, okay? David and his men return to Ziklag. Everybody say Ziklag. Okay, perfect. Just down the street from Manaka. Okay, they get back to Ziklag, and the city is burning, or their little town is burning, and all of their people have been taken away. Him and his men are like the fighting men, and they've come home, and all their women and children are gone, and the city is on fire. Okay? So, when I read that, I was like, well, I can't start there. Like, you got to know the story. You've got, I, I need to understand what's happening. So, we're going, um, we're going back in time. This is the TV show part. We're going to go back about 16 months, okay? So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 27, if you want to get prepared. You'll see it on the screen. But Steve mentioned last week that um, 
that David had fled to the Philistines, okay? So we're going to read some of that story, and we're going to follow David along the way, and I'm going to try to be quick with some of this recapping of the story, but we're going to read it because um, it's really important that we read the Word of God. So 1 Samuel 27, verses 1 through 7, we're starting here, all right? But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath, Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned for me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. Okay, so David flees to the Philistines. And when he gets there, he kind of calls himself the servant of this Philistine king, and he asks for a city, and he goes and lives in a city. Now, when I started reading this, I was like, really, David? Like, really? You're going to, like, you killed the Philistines. You slaughtered them, like, and now you're going to go live with them. And as I dug into that, what does it say at the very beginning there? But David thought to himself. That was really interesting to me. There is not a mention of God in the story of David until we get to chapter 30. There's going to be a period here where David is dealing kind of with his own ideas. Like, I think the author is intentional here. David thought to himself. Okay, now his plan worked. He left and Saul gave up searching for him. It may have been like a good plan in the eyes of man. But when I read this, I see David making a decision out of fear. Like, he's been protected this whole time. We've read all these stories of, like, people can't find David. Everybody knows where he's at, but Saul can't find him. Every time David has an opportunity, Saul does not kill him. Saul actually, like, you know, says all these great things about David. But at the same time, you can feel for David, right? Like, you can have some compassion. He's tired of being on the run. He's weary. And so he's probably stressed out. He's paranoid. But to me, this is not the same David that toppled Goliath. Like something's going on in him that he's like, I've got to run away. Um, so, all right, so he lives for 16 months, it says. Um, in uh, a year and four months, he's living in Philistine territory. So let's figure out what is David up to in this time. So we'll read the next few verses. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of Jerhamil or against the Negev of the Kenites. Those aren't the same names that he was actually raiding, if you were paying attention. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did, and such was his practice, as long as he lived in Philistine territory. All right. Again, 
So David, you know, is living in this place, and his normal practice um, is to go raiding. Now, let me tell you, the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites, all enemies of Israel. You remember the Amalekites are the people that Saul was commanded to wipe out, and he doesn't. He disobeys. Um, so these are all, David is carrying out these attacks on enemies of Israel. But at the same time, he's coming back to Achish. These are all Philistine allies, by the way, okay? So David is coming back to Achish and saying, oh, I'm taking out these Israelite tribes down here in the desert, the Negev, that's the, the desert. So he's lying to Achish and saying he's, he's killing and raiding all of these Israelite ally towns, but he's actually doing it to Philistine allies. And you can see that David doesn't want to be found out, so he's completely slaughtering everybody in these villages. And what's, what's really interesting to me, well, not really interesting, but like verse 10, Achish said, where did you go raiding today? It's like, Who'd you go kill today, David? Who'd you go raid? What stuff did you take today? And I'm like, God didn't tell him to do any of this. Like, this is David um, killing and acting deceitfully. And there is still, by the writer of this book, an intentional absence of God in the story of David. And I left, I was like, just like, I'm struggling with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest in some of this sermon and be like, oh my gosh, like really? Like really, is this what God intended? So, the story keeps going. This is, our this is what I mean by the complicated character of David. Everything we know that's good of David um, has also got this stuff going on with it. So, let me tell you. Next, here's what happens. The next, very next chapter. This is where Steve was last week as he was, um, the verses after this is Saul visiting uh, the medium at Endor. It says this in the verses. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. So the Philistines are gearing up for battle. Achish says to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. All right, you're watching the show, and right now you're like, oh my gosh, what is David going to do? Like, is David going to join the Philistines and fight against the Israelites? How is Jason Bourne going to get out of this one, right? Okay, all right. But what does David say? He says, David says, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. He's like doubling down. All right, he's either a really good poker player and he's bluffing and he's going to do something, okay? Or like David is, is, is like presenting himself as the servant of this Philistine king and he's going to go into battle against his own people, the Israelites. So Achish says, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, I don't want to read the whole next chapter, but if you get, if you pass the story of Saul and the medium, then you'll get into this, the next chapter. And here's what happens. I'll tell you this part. 29, chapter 29, David journeys with the king. And then all these Philistine rulers are like, what in the world is this guy doing here? Like, isn't this the guy we said killed tens of thousands of our people? Like, why did you bring him along? And Achish is like, no, 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 no. He's with me. He's good. And they're like, no, no, no. Send him home. So in, that, in, in chapter 29, to me, David, at the end of the chapter, his men pack up and they go home, okay? And to me, this is the first of many instances in this story, even in all this brokenness and messed upness of David, that I see God extending him grace and letting him off the hook. So he gets him out of this situation, almost like David actually tries to double down again, if you read chapter 29, but God lets him off the hook and returns him back to his people. And here is where we pick up in 1 Samuel 30. So, David and his men, like I said, are returning back to their city. And this is what we read in chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. 
David and his men reached Ziklag. Everybody say Ziklag. Ziklag. On the third day, that's the one thing you'll remember today and you won't know why you remembered it. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had... Oh, I just kicked over my water. Until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam and Abigail. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Okay, this is our first mention of the Lord here. But what happens? David comes back. He finds his city has been burnt. Everyone has been taken. There's mourning and wailing, and they're even talking of assassinating David and stoning him. Now, when I read this, and I went back into the context, for me, at least, as I was meditating on this, this felt like the consequences of David's decisions. First, living in enemy territory, Second, raiding and killing all of these villages around him. Live by the sword, die by the sword. And now he's been away for a battle he had no business being a part of. And if he was at home, would this have happened? So now he comes home to find this. Now, second instance of God extending grace. How many people were killed? None. This is the exact opposite of the way David treated other people. But somehow God has grace on David and takes none of the people of his city, kills none of the people. <clears throat> so now we, we jump in a little bit further. So he's finding strength in the Lord his God. And what does David do next? David says to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. Now the ephod is like the priestly garment that the priests would wear when they would go before God and talk to God and sacrifice and, and inquire of him. So David is asking for this garment. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered, the Lord answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So even after all of this, God again extends grace. He speaks to him. Saul had some situations like this where God was silent, but God speaks to David and he gives him a good promise that you will overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So again, I want to story tell, but here's what happens. David takes his men out. They're going along the way. Actually, some of his men are too tired from the, from the hall back to Ziklag. And so David pursues and they find um, an Egyptian along the way who had been a slave to this group of people that had raided him, the Amalekites. And, and he was poor health, so the, the Amalekites had cast him aside. Well, they, they, they help him out and, and take care of him, and he promises to be their guide. And he guides them back to the Amalekites. And when David sees them, okay, we're back in the movie, okay, they, they ha they, they're up on the ridge, you know, and they can see them, and they're all partying down there, and they're all happy with their victory. And so David ambushes them surprises them 
kills them all, except for, this says, 400 young men ran away on camels. Okay, so there's some camels out in the desert. Okay, but David is able to um, win back his people. None of his people die. And it's this point in the movie where we have this really complicated character, and he wins the big battle, and he rescues his people, and at the same time, you're not sure how to feel. Because it's like, do we root for him? Do we not root for him? Well, yeah, it's good that he got those people back and the women and the children were spared, but he didn't spare any of the women and children. And we know that he's like God's anointed, but how do we feel about all this? And I can tell you, this sermon has made me think probably more than any of the sermons that I've dealt with of just wrestling through stories in the Bible that I don't truly understand. I don't really understand them all. And I think, you know, probably if somebody told you they understood all the Bible, they were lying to you. Um, because there's just, we're, we're human, and we don't get it all, and I'm not questioning anything about God and Scripture and truth. But I am wrestling through, how do these stories of violence in the Bible match up with who God is? And I can tell you, I dove into that, and there's not really neat answers, okay? There's all kinds of people who say all kinds of things, and there's some helpful stuff out there, but none of it is like wrap a really pretty bow around it and like tie it up and forget about it. Um, and I felt like I couldn't just stop there this morning. So imagine right now I'm serving you food, and I'm going to give you a side dish before we get to the main dish, okay? Um, so here's the side dish. As I've wrestled through this, here is what I want to share with you. Some people will come to the Bible and they will say, why is God so angry and violent in the Old Testament, but he's so loving and peaceful in the New Testament? Like you have the God of, of the wars in the Old Testament and you have Jesus like forgiving everybody that's killing him in the New Testament. Like that, how does that line up? And I want to first affirm that we are not dealing with a different God in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. We can affirm that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and so many folks that I read, it all came back to the person of Jesus. Even when we're reading the Old Testament, we have to look through the lens of Scripture and read it as we know of who Jesus is. There's an archbishop, Michael Ramsey, who said this. This is really helpful. God, kind of meaning like, think of like God in the Old Testament, is Christ-like. And in him, there is no unchristlikeness at all. So let me say that a different way. Jesus is our clearest picture of who God is. So what we see in Jesus is the same character and attributes that we in the New Testament as who God is in the Old Testament. And Jesus was actually present in all of the Old Testament. The Trinity was there from the, the, from the beginning. But some will say... I, I just don't see how the two seem super compatible. Well, let me tell you, one of the most helpful things I read, um, thanks to Daniel Rossikin for sending me this article, but in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God relates to his people both with love and judgment. In both Testaments, Jesus speaks of judgment, even though he's super loving, and God in the Old Testament is very loving, even though we see a lot of judgment, but the judgment looks differently in the two Testaments. In the Old Testament, judgment happens within history. So, for example, the people of Israel disobey, God brings another country or nation to take them off into exile, put them in slavery to teach them this lesson. The judgment is happening within history. In the New Testament, judgment often, when Jesus 
Jesus is talking about judgment, he's talking about at the end of the day, at the end of the age, after history is over, that we will stand before the Father at the judgment seat, and he will judge between the sheep and the goats. Um, and, and so there, Jesus talks a lot about judgment. It just doesn't look like nations killing other nations. And here's what I can say about this. It is true that in the Old Testament, God commands violence. And I'm not always sure what to do with that, but here's the mystery. We don't really know how God worked with all these other countries. We don't know God's dealing with other nations. We do know the story of Jonah and Nineveh. We do know that God's heart towards Nineveh, even though they were an awful people towards the Israelites, he sent Jonah to tell them to repent. And Jonah's, like, that's what God wanted. God wanted them to repent, not to destroy them. And Jonah's complaint was that God had too much compassion, that he was too gracious, that, that he knew he was going to show up and love those people in spite of all that they've done. So we, we can verify that God has dealt with other nations. And, and if we can trust the picture of who Jesus is, and we know that Jesus is just and righteous, then we can trust that even though we don't know how it all worked out, there's a mystery, but that God dealt with nations with justice and fairness and righteousness. Now, the second thing I want to point out in this side dish of this whole conversation is that it's really, you got to be careful not to read all of the violence in the Old Testament as stuff that God intended, okay? God doesn't intend every single story of violence, okay? And the heroes of the Bible are complicated, and we're back to David now. Now, you can argue whether or not David should have gone to the Philistines. Maybe that was an okay idea, but here's the deal. What he was doing was not holy. What he was doing, killing and deceiving and taking lives of all those women and children, that was not asked of him by God, okay? So not every story of violence is intended by God. And if you look further at the story of David, if you know, you know, David, we've talked about this. David wanted to build the temple for God. And if, if you know the story, God tells him no and turns him down because of the bloodshed that was on his hands. So that's actually God's reason. You can't build the temple because of all the blood that's been shed in your reign. And at the end of his life, he's running from his own son who wants to kill him. David has lived this really complicated life and not every story of violence in David's life and not every story of violence in the Old Testament is ordered and approved by God. And the last thing I want to say in the side dish is this. Um... We can't use the Bible to perpetuate violence today. Um, I know this is a really hard situation, and I'm not speaking on any sides here, but we are in a current situation in the world where 1 Samuel, the book we're talking about, is being quoted in order to justify war. This is really, really hard, and there is, I want to say, there is room for protection and defense of your people but there is a place where protection and defense have merged into retaliation. And, and when we use scripture for that retaliation, that is categorically wrong. And if we do that, we are disregarding Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 that commands us to love our enemies and to bless those that curse us and to do good to those who hate you. All right, that's like...
when you go to one of these Beaver County pubs and you just ordered a side of loaded fries, okay? It's got everything on it. There's bacon, there's cheese, there's sour cream, there's chives. It's all there. That's the side dish, okay? We're leaving. Taylor was like, Dad, why did you write down order of loaded fries? I was like, I'll tell you later, okay? So let's get back to the main dish, all right? Um, as I went through this whole story, all of, you know, 1 Samuel 27, 28, 29, 30, here in good sermon fashion, I have three things to point out, okay? They don't, they don't alliterate, so don't be looking for that, so you won't remember it anyway. But here's the deal, all right? The first reflection that I had is that our God is full of grace, even in our brokenness. Over and over again. I, this violence was head-scratching. The other head-scratching thing for me that I was probably most wrestling with was like, why did God extend so much grace to David? Like, why? What? Like, he let him off the hook with the Philistines. He doesn't let any of his people die. He speaks to him when he calls. He promises deliverance. He provides him a guide, and he delivers everyone safely. So much grace, even in this period of, like, super brokenness for David. And as I reflected on that, I thought, you know, we have done a pretty good job here at the Gospel Tab of affirming our identity in Jesus, affirming who we are. We are loved sons and daughters. We're kids of the King, and we can walk in authority, and Jesus loves us, and that is all true. But at the same time, we are broken, unrighteous, like wicked people. That is who we are. But, but, there's, there's hope in this, and I, I wanted to bring this quote up because this is the perfect, like, summarizing quote that, that, of this thought of mine. The gospel is this. This is Tim Keller. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is a perfect summation of the gospel, that we are simultaneously broken individuals, and yet, at the same time, truly valued and loved and accepted and secure in Jesus because he's made us as his own. And this, you know, this whole sermon, and I'll conclude these thoughts in a minute, but this whole sermon has led me to just recognize my brokenness but to be so grateful for his grace. As we enter into like a Thanksgiving season, I mean, it just raises the level of gratitude in my heart to consider where could I have been? Where without God could I have been? And I bet you I'd have been like successful in the standards of the world, but it would have not been like abundant life. It would have not been good. It would have not been pretty. It would have been broken and filthy. And I recognize that, and I'm grateful for his grace. Even this week, I was reflecting on my brokenness in a situation that I did not handle well, and yet God extends grace to us. Second, I, this passage caused me to think about the difference between Saul and David, all right? If we compare the lives of Saul and David, you know, this is the part of 1 Samuel where Saul is on the decline. He's being demoted. He's, uh, spoiler alert, he's going to die next week. Okay, so next week, Saul's going to be, you know, no more. All right. And David is on the rise. And actually, this is like a story of David winning a victory while Saul is losing a battle. Okay. 
But the story is not about how David is so righteous and Saul is so unrighteous. Like, and if I, if David was like up here on your list of all-time Christians, okay, they didn't call them Christians in the Old Testament, but you know, David's like up there, okay? Well, maybe like after, you know, hearing some of this, we've kind of brought him down a little bit. But here's the difference between Saul and David. The difference was the posture of their heart toward God, okay? So you, you see Saul on the one hand. Saul, he never really trusted God's word. He tried to take things into his own hands. He tried to use God for his benefit. He was disobedient. And probably most importantly, he was unrepentant when these things came up. You've heard all of our sermons about, you know, all the misfires of Saul and the tests and the trials that he did not pass. Meanwhile, David, on the other hand, has failed in some of the same ways that Saul did. He's taken things into his own hands. He's acted out of fear. He's done all these things that leave us scratching our head. But we also see in David's life, he trusts the word of the Lord. He trusts God in his battle over Goliath. He trusts God not to take the kingship into his hands and just kill Saul and try to take over. He does trust God's word. And later on in his life, this is, you know, you guys know about David. I mean, he's also has an affair and murders a, a, a man. Um, and in that situation, probably one of the most famous pictures of David in Psalm 51, when confronted, David is repentant. This is super important. Saul was always unrepentant. David, when confronted with his sin, was repentant. And all throughout the Psalms, we know, and you can see, you can read the pages and know God, uh, David's heart towards God, that he kept coming back to God, even when it wasn't pretty, like even in doubt and grief and like not knowing what was going on, he kept posturing his heart to be in God's presence. And a lot of times, even in the same Psalm, there's, there's praise and worship mixed with, I don't know what to do about this. I'm angry about this, but he's wrestling with God and he's coming back to him over and over and over again. And my reflections on this was, look, David was really, really nothing without God. His life is just such a caricature of like two extremes. Like he's setting up temple worship. He's dancing in the streets. He's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. He's, he's lifting up God. And yet his kingdom is also falling apart and his son's trying to kill him and he's killing all these people and he's having an affair and doing all this stuff. It's just like the extremes. And it's like David had, David, we, we can't elevate these, these people. We can elevate who God is in their life and how they posture themselves before him and how they keep coming back to him. But it makes me think, I'm so broken and the only way I can live a life worth anything is to keep positioning myself in dependence on God. Third, Lastly, this is kind of the obvious. Don't shake your head and be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, think about this for a second. Okay, Jesus is a better king than David was. Okay, church answer, right? But here's the deal. I was thinking about this as I was pouring over this sermon. You know what? David decided to go live with the Philistines. All right, hard to blame him. I've already said this. Maybe it was a, a, a good worldly decision. But then I thought about Jesus. What if Jesus had run? 
Jesus knew he was headed towards death. What if Jesus took off and hopped on a caravan to Ethiopia? All right, where would you be today if Jesus had left and gone somewhere else when he knew that he was headed towards death? But he didn't run from it like David did. He was willing to be obedient to the point of death. And maybe you say, that's not fair. David was supposed to be king and Jesus was supposed to die. Well, don't you think God could have worked all that out in David's story? Don't you think God could have figured it out? If David decided to stay in Israel, don't you think God could have figured it out? And maybe all these other really crappy things wouldn't have happened to David. Maybe he wouldn't have had, you know, like all these people coming and burning down his city and all of this stuff. Like God could have taken care of that. There's actually a story just a few chapters back. I went faster than I could, so I got a few minutes, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go longer. Okay, don't worry, don't worry. All right, there's a story of how David wants to kill this guy Nabal in like chapter 24, and his wife, Abigail, Nabal's wife, Abigail, stops David from killing all these men. Like, raise up the woman here, because she brought sense to the situation. So she stops David from killing all these guys, and what does God do? God takes care of Nabal himself. God doesn't kill all these people. He just kills Nabal, okay? So Nabal's, you know, that's, that's judgment. But Abigail saves David from all of this bloodshed. Don't you think God could have worked all that out too? Okay, God could have taken care of that. Um, but David didn't let him. David ran away. Um, and Jesus is just such a better king than David was. Such a different kind of king. It's like an altogether different kind of king. Most, most leaders run from the enemy to avoid pain, but Jesus was willing to walk through death for us. You see, Jesus was building a different kind of kingdom altogether. It wasn't built according to the ways of man. Who did you go raiding today? What stuff did you take today? Like, how did you accumulate more power and men and all this stuff? Jesus didn't build a kingdom that way. He built a kingdom using death as a vehicle to life. He walked through death so that we could experience life on the other side. And the only way we get there is by going through death ourselves. And I mean the death of what we want, what we hope for, what we dream about, the death of our plans and agendas, the death of thinking that we can somehow build this kingdom of God. Like the best we can do is to partner with what God is doing. But in order to do that, we got to die we have to let go of these things so that we can actually experience abundant life. And as I reflected on this, it made me think of a passage of scripture about Jesus. And I want to read it in a different translation because we all know the words and we miss them when we know them. So follow along with me from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, crucifixion. Heather, would you mind coming up to play us out this morning? As I reflected on this, 
my prayer was, Lord, would you form that kind of mind in me? Would you form in me the mind of Jesus that actually sought to not bring my privileges into the situation, not bring my advantages into the situation, but to somehow die to myself really on a daily and a moment-by-moment -moment basis, to know my own brokenness, to know that the gospel is that I am that broken, but God is so loving that he makes me want to posture my heart in his presence, that he makes me want to go after him instead of all these other things, and to somehow be a part of this upside-down abundant life that comes by way of death, that comes by way of weakness, that comes by way of giving up our rights and giving up our abilities and giving up even the things that um, we really love in order to see and to follow what God wants. So I hope as you meditate on this, um, I hope you hear, um, I hope you hear God calling you to just a different, a different kind of life, a different kind of, like the leaders of the world don't live this way, but the leaders in God's kingdom live a very different kind of life.